All right, so we're back to Cracks and Postmodernity. Today we have Nathan Allebach, who is a social media expert. He's a creative director who writes about internet culture, urbanism, a lot of stuff that we're interested in. Nathan, thank you for coming on. Yeah, thanks so much for having me, Stephen. So Nathan, we met back in November at the Novitate conference, uh, which was about the life and work of Rene Girard. And you presented on a panel about it's mostly about identity, um, somewhat about internet culture. And you had a lot of interesting things to say about um, trends in advertising, which we'll talk a little bit more about. But then when you and I got talking one-on-one, -on -one, I found that you're also very much into uh, urbanism, urban planning, which is you know something we talk a lot about on the Substack, on the podcast. And then I found out you had a very viral video on TikTok about third places got over a million views. So can you, for people who don't know, can you give a little background on like the genesis of this video and then how it kind of, you know, went viral? Yeah, no, sure. It's It's been crazy too, because yeah, you and I, we met at that conference a few months back and I published that video on TikTok. It would have been two years ago this September. So like really like a year and a half-ish from like the time of this recording, a year and a half ago-ish. Um, and the it's interesting because at the time I remember I was just like really enthralled by the topic of third places and urbanism more broadly. So when I was kind of making TikToks um, around those those topics, I was just kind of looking up various subjects to cover, like different angles on things that I was seeing um, in online discourse. And that was like a big one that really resonated with me. And I knew resonated with friends of mine um, from growing up, seeing as like we, a lot of my friends, we grew up in a, a pretty strong like local music scene. Um, both in like a, a sort of like hardcore and punk sense. There was like a lot of shows happening in people's basements and churches and garages and just random restaurants and, and places all over where I grew up. And then also in this uh, coffee shop environment in a, in a nearby town that I grew up playing open mics at. So there was like all these kind of central hubs centered around music uh, for me and my friends growing up where I got to meet just a ton of a ton of cool people, people that I'm still friends with to this day. I actually met my wife at this coffee shop that I used to MC an open mic at. Um, so anyway, like the, the sort of concept of third places being like this kind of if your your first place is home and your second place is work, and then your third place is kind of all these social institutions or social gathering places like coffee shops and cafes and barber shops and libraries and churches and just you know other places where you would gather with people outside of home and work where there's kind of like a minimal um ask for for you to to be like a consumer per se like it's not like a grocery store where you're going in with the explicit purpose to buy things and then leave there's kind of a um an emphasis on lingering an emphasis on like you know a reason for people to kind of hang out and stay a while and catch up with with friends and and that type of thing so the the topic was kind of near and dear to me and the more i learned about it from the uh, the man who coined it ray oldenburg in his book uh, great uh, great good places um, and what I learned about it, I was like, wow, this is like, this seems like it's kind of hitting the moment that we're in, in a way, in a kind of like post COVID world, um, where like, you know, people are continuously atomized, like on the back of, you know, the last decade of, of social media platforms and smartphones and, and all these other social and psychological trends that are kind of just further and further, uh, isolating us from one another. So it felt really timely. Um, when, when I was scripting it for TikTok, uh, like two Septembers ago, I, there was only one other video I found of a guy who did a kind of like similar brief explainer. His name was Paul Stout. Uh, his account was, uh, I think it's called Talking Cities. Yeah. Uh, he's really, really bright, really cool, um, cool guy, great communicator. Uh, he's got more of like an NPR kind of voice, like approach to, to content than I do. Where I'm a little bit more kind of like talkative, bombastic, uh, rambly, you know? <laughs> so it's kind of like, I was like, oh, you know, he kind of hit this at a certain angle. Like I'm going to try to to speed run it in, in a little bit of a different way. So yeah, it ended up going, like you said, super viral on TikTok and then even actually more viral on Twitter. It got like, it got like 1.4 million views on TikTok and it ended up getting like four or 5 million views on Twitter. So it like blew up, it was trending for a while. And um, it's been cool because since then I've seen a, a ton of other people making TikToks and YouTube videos about the topic. Not to say like, I don't think my video single-handedly created that sort of like avalanche effect but I, I like to think it maybe played some small role in that so it's just cool to see like a topic like that that big and that kind of uh universally felt hitting the zeitgeist in that way um but yeah no i didn't like from, from like a personal and professional background just for your audience like i didn't have a um like an official you know 
a credentialed background in this area. Like I'm not an urban planner. I'm not a city planner. I'm not an engineer. Um, I didn't come into this world through any of those lenses. Um, I'm just like you mentioned, I mean, I'm a creative director. I work in social media prior to all of this. I kind of became quote unquote known like my, my niche online celebrity status became a, a thing with the Stakem Twitter account, which was this frozen meat brand that I managed for several years between 2017 and 2021 that went viral a bunch of times on Twitter for like kind of absurd self-aware cultural commentary on like various topics. So uh, I've been running like social media and like general marketing work for brands for a long time. And that was just kind of the one that blew up and, and, and got my name attached to it in a way where now people are like, oh yeah, you're like the steak and Twitter guy. So that's been kind of weird to deal with over the years. And then when this third places video blew up, then that became like the kind of next thing that people started to associate me with. So it really, for me, like that topic and any of the other range of topics that I'm interested in that maybe we'll talk about more here, they're really just like hobby horses of mine. Um, like I said, kind of connected to my personal experiences from like my community growing up um, in like the music scene and also just like a range of other interests connected to like political and, and social discourse. So it's cool. It's been cool to kind of experience the the topic broadly of urbanism connecting to people the past few years as like things like the housing crisis and, you know, the environmental crisis and traffic deaths and uh, atomization, all these other issues have become so pertinent and, and so felt for people uh, across the country and across um, other parts of the world more broadly. It's been cool to see these topics come to light more and people take more interest in the kind of weird nitty gritty of like social infrastructure and zoning reform and all these things that would be a complete drag if uh, you had, you'd mentioned them to me in like high school, but are now feeling like, you know, more important um, to, to discuss. So that's kind of like my intro to this world and, um, and, and how uh, I guess you and I got to, to talking about some of this stuff. Yeah. And as I was saying to you before, like it was very refreshing for me to meet someone else who uh, um, is interested in talking about these topics because it wasn't until recently that I understood that so much of my experience started to make sense. Like a lot of pieces started to come together the more I read into urbanism. Um, you know, like growing up in a very, very suburban area, like it started to show me how a lot of the things that I experienced were um, the direct result of the layout of the land, you know, like the the design of where I was living. And again, like, I think we we come to take for granted how much that affects our psychological well-being, our, our you know, spiritual well-being, whatever we want to call it. Um, but I, I do want to ask you this. So like, I found Oldenburg while reading Christopher Lash's Revolt of the Elites. I'm curious to know where you found out about him and, and his third place concept. It's funny. I, I think I actually found out about him just through a coworker. I think I'm, I'm pretty sure like my memory is not great, but I think my coworker, Bob, had read his book this is years ago. Um, and he knew based on the, the topics that we're talking about now, I was talking with him about this stuff. And he was like, oh, have you read this guy's work? And I was like, no. Um, then when I looked it up, I was like, oh, my gosh. And all these things started clicking in my mind. I was like, oh, yeah, this is, you know, because I, I had been like generally interested and generally aware of the sort of trends that Oldenburg was discussing in that book. I mean, similarly connected to like Robert Putnam's work with Bowling Alone, the kind of, you know, trajectory of the past several decades where Americans in specific uh, have become more atomized from their communities as, as social infrastructure has diminished um, due to a range of, 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 of cause and effect, you know, with some, some having to do with policy, some having to do with cultural changes. And um, so I, I was kind of like broadly aware of it but yeah i was not um i wasn't like privy to his work um in any like i said in any kind of professional capacity it was kind of once it was floated to me all these things started to connect in a way that uh that, that really made sense and so just uh again for context can you tell people a little bit more about your own background growing up and how that um how that kind of sparked your interest in finding out more about uh about urban planning yeah, no, absolutely. Um, I grew up in a really small suburban town. So like not like a suburb when people post like the suburban, like, a, you know, meme of a subdivision where there's like a million houses that all look the same, like lined up in the development. Not a suburb like that. Um, you know, kind of small town, old town outside of Philly that did have like a very sprawling kind of just small town feel to it. Um, like on our street, our street was developed um while I was growing up. So I mean, like while I was growing up, there was like no houses on the street that we lived in. And like over time, it ended up becoming like 10, 15 or so 
houses along this this street. Um, when I was a kid, like when I was like you know ages one to seven, I grew up in a like right in the downtown of a small town, and uh, you know just ta- like we were, we lived in a duplex um, surrounded by other duplexes and townhouses. So you know right down the street from a barber shop, right down the street from a bunch of shops downtown. So I kind of had like a little bit of that experience of a town. Yeah. growing up or like me and my mom like and some of my friends like we would just walk around and explore the kind of like small urban environment that was there but um broadly like after i was seven my parents moved into this uh, suburban home where uh, i spent most of my childhood then and like i said the street was there was virtually no housing on it at all so like there was nowhere i could walk um i, I took to to bike riding very quickly when i turned like 11 or 12 uh, is when I started to really just kind of go out on my own, like bike into town. And it was a really obnoxious bike ride because it was like everything was uphill. So like to get anywhere, I had to just trek up this massive hill to to get it to my friends' houses and to get to like the local Walmart or Blockbuster or uh, or wherever I was trying to go. So, um, so yeah, like from a very young age, like my sort of um, my ability to get around was like super limited. And I did have some close friends who all were in like a bikeable distance. So like we were able to meet up a bit and and hang out that way. But definitely once I got to like my teenage years, like my mid to late teen years, that became a a huge crutch in terms of like, or I I should say a huge hurdle in terms of like just being part of a community, you know, like, I mean, once my friends started driving, we all started kind of realizing like, there's literally nothing to do in the town that we grew up. Like there's no, the, the gathering place that we're spending most of our time is like the Walmart mini mall you know with like like a like a blockbuster there there was a grocery store there like a pizza shop like virtually nothing going on in this town so we all started to kind of explore uh nearby towns and just like seeing like what was around and the one town we started to spend a lot of time in was this town called phoenixville which still had like the heart of a traditional old school downtown with lots of mixed use shops and housing and cafes and bookstores and just like just places to do stuff basically. And um, there was this coffee shop there called Steel City Coffee House. It's still there today. It's it's switched ownership a few times, but it's been there for probably 30, 30 or so years at this point. And um, I started playing an open mic there. I started going to the open mic there when I was 13. I started playing there probably when I was 17 or so um, and just spent almost every Thursday night there. But it was like a 30 minute drive from where I lived. So it became this like huge hassle where i'd have to like call friends see if i could get a ride eventually when i started driving trying to see if other people wanted to drive with me we could split the gas money like it was like this whole ordeal just to get to this place because it was like the only place doing something like that within a 30 minute to an hour drive from where i lived so that definitely was probably like my favorite and most formative third place uh growing up and the older I got, like, especially, you know, this, I'm not sure how old you are. Uh, I turned 33 this year, but I think we're, you might be in your, yeah, you I'm like two years younger. Yeah. Okay, cool. So like we're similar aged. Uh, I'm sure you've noticed this to the extent, well, you live in Brooklyn, so maybe it's not yeah. as dramatic um, for you, but for me, it's like having grown up in the suburbs and, and having most of my friends and family in the, in the area, the older you get, as people get married and they move for jobs and stuff, it's like your community just fractures to such a high degree. And you start just to realize the limitations of the built environment of the suburbs because you're just completely disconnected from everybody, including your immediate family. Like there's there's this sort of um, this I don't know if it's a saying as much as it's kind of like a, a truism in the urbanism space where people will talk about how within the suburban model of development, you have this kind of American dream where parents will grow up. They earn they get to a certain amount of earnings where they can afford a suburban house, like a middle class or upper, upper middle class yeah. suburban house, depending on where they live and depending on their salary, where they eventually move into like a fairly decent sized three bedroom single family home somewhere. And they move in there, they they raise their kids there. And by the time their kids move out, their kids obviously can't afford to live anywhere near that home. So either, you know, they might go off to college for a few years, but even so, once they get into the workplace, it wouldn't be until, you know, 10, 15 years later that they potentially be able to afford to live in the neighborhood they grew up in. And by that time, by the time that they would want to, if they did want to move back to where their parents lived, their parents would be nearing retirement where they're looking to downsize um, and actually move away into either a retirement community or a smaller home where they can manage. So it's this kind of like vicious cycle where over generations, families are kind of forcibly disconnected and displaced from one another 
where you know parents are separated from their children who are then separated from their grandchildren because the way the sur suburban housing uh, development pattern works is that you know it, it excludes certain types of housing from being built so you know where i grew up it's not like if you wanted to build an apartment complex or a duplex anywhere you can do that i mean most of the land is solely designated for single family homes so it just becomes you know we can get into this if you'd like i don't know how much we want to get into the nitty-gritty but obviously that being the kind of legal precedent and groundwork for most of the united states then creates this not only affordability crisis but this segregation crisis where people are not only racially segregated which is obviously you know a historic blight you know on the united states and, and you deal with that within and out, within cities and in the sprawl of cities but you also just have like class and just family and communal segregation where people just naturally have to move away from one another as they grow up as they get jobs as they kind of grow in their careers and there's not this um like when you contrast that to the traditional development model within cities where it's always been like you know you got high rises next to mid rises next to duplexes next to townhomes and all these things kind of coexist within mixed use development where there's shops and housing and, and places where people can work nearby you have options in that world you know like if you if you are a wealthy or a middle class person and you want to downsize from your house into a smaller place of living you might be able to find something within five or ten minutes away but if you want to do that in the suburbs you're looking at 20 30 40 minutes away from from yeah. where your neighborhood is so anyway all, all those those dynamics definitely seem to they became more clear and more prevalent for me um as, as i've gotten older and as i've come become a homeowner and and, and had kids and had to kind of grapple with this as my friends have moved and, and all of that yeah no i mean i think there's a lot of parallels between our experiences because i you know like i said i grew up in a suburban environment that wasn't very towny like it's you know, the downtown was kind of far away and super small but in general like the experience growing up was super atomized like very much disconnected from neighbors from family and my main way into this, because, you know, my background is mostly theology, philosophy. I'm very interested to see how the space, the environment that we grow up in shapes our view of the world, shapes our sense of reality, of selfhood. Um, and in particular, like looking at my family's history, growing up in the ethnic barrio in the city, for us, it was in Newark, New Jersey. Um, like moving out to the suburbs means that you made it, you know, you get away from the, the crowds, the, the poverty, you have your nice little area just for yourselves, for your uh, immediate family. Um, but the inevitable result is the ex experience of uprooting, also the assimilation of kind of losing your, your cultural roots, your traditions, your values. Um, and I like for me, I see how much that experience of uprooting um, is the cause of a lot of, I would say, like spiritual and psychological malaise that I see not just in myself, but also in my peers. Um, and I think, like, especially just seeing all the, the social issues that plague our, our society right now, like looking at a lot of the culture war issues, like, I think if we brought um, urban design into the discourse, it would shed a lot of light on these issues that, that we're arguing about, but also, like, it would show us that a lot of the solutions are a lot simpler than we think. Like, if we talked about things like zoning policy, um, we'd be able to get, we would make, be able to make a lot more progress than again, like clashing over these bigger ideological issues. Um, but I'm, I'm curious for you, like, if, if you, like, similarly, the more you looked into urbanism, if it shed light on other bigger picture issues that you think are, are part of the, you know, the discourse, what people are talking about today. Yeah, I mean, what you just laid out, that's a huge one. I mean, it kind of, kind of, it's interesting because the door, it swings both ways on this where, you know, I've noticed from a kind of arguing and, and and discussing these topics with people on Twitter and TikTok and, and in real life, honestly, I've had a lot of conversations with friends, both in person and in DMs as I've posted more about this stuff. And, and they've come to kind of know my stances on it, where you have people on sort of both ends of the political spectrum and then also like the racial spectrum in a way, um, kind of voicing similar concerns. Like everybody has a very similar, um, like you said, like identity marker where they come at it from different angles, but the concern is similar. So like, for example, with gentrification, you have obviously a lot of communities, specifically minority communities, but also some low-income white communities as well, um, especially in like the Appalachian and like Southern southern towns. Um, but largely you, you find this issue, it's more racially charged within like black, brown, uh, black and brown communities, I would say within cities and on the outskirts of cities, where when you start to talk about development and you start to talk about kind of planning and and and, and all these things there's this uh sour taste harkening back to the last few decades of urban planning and uh and uh, urban renewal 
specifically where, you know, there have been not only did we have, you know, highways just like literally just destroying these communities where we, you know, through redlining where highways are just literally being built straight down, you know, the center of, of black communities, then set, kind of creating segregation lines between, you know, the quote unquote bad neighborhoods and, and the white neighborhoods, essentially. And um, you have you see so you have like explicit, like an explicit history like that. Um, and then obviously, through the past few decades, or I should say the past couple decades, um, there's this, been this kind of resurgence where if in the 50s and 60s, you had a lot of what, what's, be, what's become known as white flight, where, you know, like cities became uh, more more populated with minorities and there was, you know, various other kind of in, intertwining social issues like crime, uh, crime rates and, and other issues in certain neighborhoods, all kind of creating this, uh, uh, I don't want to say it was all a moral panic, obviously, like crime rates have real material um, effects in the world, but like largely because of like the racial discourse of that time, a lot of this was just uh, blown out of proportion and white people were just kind of irrationally um, afraid to be living uh, it, like around minorities because specifically black people because they thought it was going to bring crime and it was going to make their property values plummet um whether or not that was based in any kind of material material analysis um i think in most cases it wasn't um but that le led to most these white people moving out of cities into the suburbs which was called white flight and then for decades then there was the kind of uh lagging effect of like those those inner city neighborhoods getting much worse in terms of property values, in terms of crime, um, just in terms of like uh, quality of life overall, while those white families moved to suburbs that were exclusively white. And like a lot of the policymaking back then was exactly that. It was whites only neighborhoods. So you have that's the kind of backdrop of the history. But now in recent decades, the script is kind of flipped. We're now white people and kind of middle to upper class people, including yuppies, like young adults like you and I, are moving back into these cities. So that's causing this kind of like inverse of the real estate market where now all these neighborhoods that were once undesirable because of their proximity to minorities and just in general being segregated from, from white people and from wealth in these areas, they're becoming more desirable places to live. And it's interesting because like when I get talking to people about this, everybody, most young people, especially young liberal-ish people who have, you know, taken you know, some social science class or, or have some progressive friends, like they have some inkling of this concept in their minds. Like they know, okay, gentrification is bad. Gentrification is when white people move into black neighborhood. That's kind of like the the extent to which I think most people think about this issue. But the, the thing that really kind of drove me um, into thinking more deeply about it as I kind of learned more about the, these these issues around urbanism over the past recent years was the fact that it's not that people like me, like a, like a young, like middle-ish class white person, it's not like I have this desire now to move into a black neighborhood, you know, to, you know, bring, to change the neighborhood and to increase my property value or like or treat it as an investment or whatever. It's really the fact that people like me um, are getting priced out of the places that we would prefer to live in. So what happens is a lot of these neighborhoods, whether it's in the cities or in the suburbs, they become so expensive that they become de facto exclusive for even the lower rung of the middle class, especially like lower middle class white people. So those, what then happens is like, if you imagine like in the inner city, imagine there's like a, say, take Philadelphia, for example, you know, like there's parts of center city that are extremely, extremely expensive, like old city, like, like super segregated, historic district, old, beautiful houses are very well curated. Imagine like a demand to live in or around an area like that. But because there's such restrictions on the zoning policy and, and parking laws and other um, and other planning policies that basically prevent development, nothing can get built there. So what happens to that demand? Well, it just kind of sprawls outward to the surrounding neighborhoods. And you can imagine that um, that way of thinking just expanding across all cities all the time. So like wherever you have a desirable place to live, if development's not happening at, at a pace in which is keeping up with the demand for especially like yuppies to move into, developers, they say, oh, well, hey, you know, we can't build in this downtown district where all these young people want to move, but we can build in this neighborhood five minutes down the street or 10 minutes down the street where it's all poor, you know, like there's a bunch of like broken down housing. It's it's, you know, there's not really anything going on here and there's very few barriers to development. So we're going to build up, you know, an apartment complex or whatever here as those young people kind of get pushed into these these minority um, dominated communities in, in cities. So that's that's kind of it's 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 kind of like a um you know like a cause and effect thing where i think most people when they see like a topic like gentrification or displacement today 
all they see is the memes and the memes are like oh like this this kind of like ugly building this this ugly apartment building just moved into my neighborhood that's gentrification like the neighborhood's now being gentrified or like oh this hipster coffee shop is moving into my neighborhood that means the neighborhood's becoming gentrified and that's true but the reality is those things moving into your neighborhood they're not they're not a sign that your neighborhood is starting to become gentrified. They're a sign that your neighborhood became gentrified 10, 15 years ago, because now those businesses and those developers see that like, this is now a profitable place for us to move yeah. new demographic into. So it's kind of like a, like from a mindset, like I like to kind of switch it up for people because when you see those things, you don't want to think like it's bad that new stuff is moving in because that's not the issue. They're following money and trends that have been going on for years at this point. Really, if that's the concern, like say, you know, there's like a Chinatown, like this is big in Philly right now, because um, there's been plans to, to build a stadium around the, the existing Chinatown sort of enclave. And there's a lot of local un unrest about that. It's like, when you see stuff like that happening, it's like the issue should not be, oh, like this place or th this business or these people want to move into this neighborhood, it should be, well, you know, if we want to slow that and make that integration process a little bit more natural, quote unquote, or incremental, um, as to say, like, not necessarily allow like a 20 story apartment building getting built in the middle of a bunch of low income townhouses, then we have to re reform these zoning laws locally, regionally, statewide in order for housing uh, supply to meet the existing demand in order to kind of like allow people to live where they want to live versus like being forced into neighborhoods and places that they otherwise probably wouldn't have moved into. So things like that, like the more you learn about it and you kind of see like the cause and effect, it's like. It's not to say, like, like I said, not to make light of the issue itself. Like, obviously, the lived experiences of people on the ground in these neighborhoods, they're going to feel the effects of that in different ways. Like, if you see an apartment move into your town and you're a low-income Black person, obviously, like, you, the feeling of gentrification, like, oh, great. Like, now there's a bunch of, like, new white yuppies moving into my town. That means the kind of demographic makeup and the culture in the community is going to start shifting. That's a very real thing. Um, I think just the issue is that that's more of a an effect and not the cause of gentrification, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, and I mean for me personally, with gentrification, I'm very much interested in like the cultural dimensions of of the whole phenomenon because, like you said, like you have these white kids who grew up in the suburbs, but oftentimes their parents, their grandparents, grew up in the city. And again, in my case, it's within like an ethnic enclave in the city. Um, and like, there was a certain point when I decided to move back into Newark, um, because so like when I, when I studied abroad in Europe, I kind of like got a taste for what, I don't know, for like what my roots were, what life was like, um, being in like a small city in Europe where everything, I don't know, like the culture is very rich and everybody's connected to each other. Like you don't get that atomization, um, that rootlessness that you find in a lot of the suburbs here. And the closest thing I knew was in one of these uh, European enclaves that still exists in Newark, um, one of very few. So I decided to move move into the neighborhood. And on one hand, like I found that again, like that strong cultural dimension that was like really life giving for me, like it was very exciting. But I also found again, like back to what I was saying about the psychological piece of this, that like I was just not equipped for life in the city because like I, there, there were a couple of like, you know, um, luxury high rises that, I mean, if I, if I stretched my budget, I could have afforded to live there, but I decided to live in like one of the old school buildings, which was, you know, not managed well, but I just, I don't know, like dealing with a lot of the, the BS that comes with being in a, again, like a lower income kind of place. I don't know, like my, my inner slope, the snowflake came out and I was <laughs> like, yeah, this isn't going to last much longer. Um, but now, okay. So like fast forward to where I am now, like I'm in a neighborhood in Brooklyn that is like uh, socioeconomically pretty mixed. Ethnically, it's very mixed. Um, but the thing that's appealing to me is that there is a strong sense of cultural rootedness. Like all the different ethnic groups, like are actually like their culture is still alive for them. It isn't just kind of like these uprooted white mm -hmm. kids. Um, but also, there are plenty of third places. Like there are places where people hang out, whether it's the bars and restaurants, the churches, the libraries. Like there's a, a strong public life. Um, so no, no, like I, it's very interesting what you're saying about gentrification, that a lot of what we see is the effect, not as much the cause. Um, but it, it does make me think about, like I've told you that I, I've been trying to raise this issue more, at least through my writing. And I find that a lot of people are saying, you know, like this is a dead issue, whether you're talking about 
you know, building, building strong towns, uh, building, um, like kind of maintaining ethnic enclaves in cities, kind of trying to sustain these third places. I don't know, like, at least from what I'm seeing, a lot of people are like, yeah, you know, all this like uh, stuff that's critical of suburbanism, of gentrification. It's like, all right, you're not going to do much anymore. Like the policies are what they are. But you seem to be a little more hopeful. I'm like, I'm curious to know, like, what do you see in your involvement with urban planning circles? Like what, yeah, like what, what hope do you have for kind of building up these kinds of environments? Yeah, no, it, it is interesting because like I do, I'm not hopeful when it comes to the discourse. I think the discourse around this stuff is just like it's poison. It's toxic. Mm -hmm. um, and I think because of how visceral it is for people, like I'm not even I don't even want to say it's poison and toxic. Oh, like uh, people are saying mean things. It's not like that. I just yeah. think it's so emotionally um, just gripping because it's, it is people's experiences on the ground often that they're kind of watching this kind of development happening in and around their neighborhood so it becomes really difficult to talk about potential solutions and then if you're a guy like if you see a guy like me come into the discourse and i'm you know a white white young dude and i'm saying like oh we need to reform zoning laws to allow more development the kind of knee-jerk reaction to that is why would we ever want more development like the development is the issue right now like we're seeing all these new buildings get built these buildings they're not built well they're ugly they're coming into our neighborhoods and like ruining the character of our neighborhoods um and so on and like I said earlier, I really think that that's just a result of what people are seeing versus the actual cause of why that that building is happening the way it's happening. Like even just to take a kind of tangential example, when you look at the way zoning laws are structured right now in most cities, the red tape that exists is just so profound and so vast across, you know, just getting building permits, just the 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 stipulations on like how to have like the the proper setback of like, you know, where, where the building can go up to the curb, how tall the building can be, the types of materials that can be used. There's just so, so much red tape that ends up literally forcing developers to make decisions and to cut costs in order to make any money at all. Because it gets to the point where, like there's this developer um, in, in a town nearby where my wife and I live and they bought this plot of land five years ago. It'll be five years this year. It's a, it was a rundown abandoned building. The building had been abandoned for 10 years. They bought this plot of land. They put through a proposal, uh, a bidding with with the uh, the city council. Uh, it was against like three other developers. They won. They 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 offered the most amount of money for it. They got it. And since that time, of five years ago, people locally have been protesting them building just townhouses. They're literally just planning to build townhouses, not high rises, not mid rises. Just a it was like seventy townhouses or so on this this plot of land. So imagine like you're that developer. Again, I'm not trying to like. There's a certain subset of people who would hear me talking about this and be like, oh, like he's, you know, simping for developers. Like, no, like I'm trying to explain pragmatically. Imagine you are the business owner in this situation. You bought this plot of land five years ago. You're paying taxes on it. You already proposed a plan with the city council that was approved. And yet now the plans have been being blocked by local residents for the past five years. So they haven't even broken ground on it. So you just imagine like things like that, that just add to your costs over time to the point from like the start of a proposal of a project to the time that it's actually built and you have people buying it or renting it from you. It just, it leads to just so many issues with design, with placement, with the size of buildings and, and all these things that really just feed directly into a lot of the common issues people bring up when they talk about gentrification. So I think, um, you know, it's sound, it's like a weird solution or it's a weird sounding solution. Like when you talk about, Hey, Zoning reform, you should basically be allowed, people should be allowed to build what they want with the property that they own um, to meet demand uh, of housing needs. For some people, like I said, on the, the left-leaning side of the spectrum, we're not even left-leaning, but like we're talking about often like the, the, the victims of gentrification and displacement, um, often minority communities, they hear that and they say, oh my gosh, like we don't want that. We don't want more hipster coffee shops coming into our community and, and, and ugly gentrification buildings. But then you have the middle and upper middle class often white people on the flip side of that conversation also saying, no, 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 we don't want that. We don't want apartments and, and coffee shops coming into our exclusive white suburbs or our exclusive white neighborhoods within the city. So it's, it's like both ends of the spectrum politically, uh, racially, socially have like these what we, you know, different flavors of what we call NIMBYism, the kind of not in my yeah. backyard types where they, they, they oppose development. And obviously, you know, <laughs> It's a lot like uh, comparing communism to fascism, you know, like you can, I guess, pose arguments to be like, oh, you know, well, 
based on intent, you know, I guess like maybe some people in like the more left-leaning or minority uh, side of these arguments, like they they have more moral justification for for their thinking here, like in terms of just like what they're hoping to achieve. But I think from all the urban planning side of things or the urbanist side of things, I should say, um, a lot of the end result just ends up looking exactly the same, no matter which side you're on. I mean, there've been, I can't even tell you how many cases. There's one pretty notorious one outside of, or in Philly, in a Philly neighborhood called a Squirrel Hill that had happened in recent years where this, uh, this uh, I might get some of the details wrong. Your audience uh, can feel free to Google this. There's been a lot of articles about it, but um, this, this building was proposed of apartments and in this neighborhood, it was a pretty wealthy neighborhood, mind you. And um, of that, of the units that would have been included in this apartment building, I forget the exact percentage in the original proposal, but it might have been somewhere between 40 and 60% would have been subsidized to the area median income, meaning like definitionally affordable housing. So, that, and that could be based on different percentages. It could be like based on 40% of the area median income or 60%. A lot of times there's a tiered system when developers put these proposals forward just to kind of be like, you know, 10% of our units will have, you know, housing that's uh, basically like 40% cheaper for people who have an income that's 40% below the median income of where we're building this. So it had some fairly large percentage of uh, subsidized affordable units and people locally started protesting it. A lot of them progressives, a lot of them left-leaning people saying like, we don't want this like luxury housing in here. It's not affordable enough, et cetera. And this went on for years. It went on for years and years and years. And ultimately, I forget, it, it, I think it was last year or a year or two ago, the building got built. And I want to say it was virtually, no, it might have been none, um, but it was virtually no affordable housing ended up getting built at all because of that. And that's, that tends to be the story of how these proposals work because people, you know, developers try to, to meet the local need. Like they say, all right, the city council or the residents, they're, they're asking for a certain percentage of subsidized units. Here's what we think we can do based on like the profitability of this project and, and so on. Um, and if that's protested and if those protests go on for years, obviously, again, the capability of, uh, of the developer to meet that demand uh, diminishes. So you see you see this kind of stuff over and over and over again with development projects. Um, and yeah, like, like we're like we're saying, it's just really the more you learn about it and how the politics of it works at the local level, you know, as much as I empathize or I shouldn't say empathize, I should say sympathize with um, with people in these in these positions, oftentimes well-intentioned or not, uh, the result ends up being the same, which is housing just doesn't get built, affordable or otherwise. Um, so in that case, it just exacerbates the issues of affordability. It exacerbates the issues of segregation, and oftentimes doesn't do anything um, but hurt the the cause that you're fighting against. Because if you're you know if you're fighting more new units coming in, it doesn't mean all new units are stopping from being built. But it does mean that if there's fewer units, those fewer units are going to be more expensive just by the law of supply and demand. So um, I'm, I'm of the opinion of, of housing abundance. And I think, you know, whether you're in a exclusive single family suburb or you're in a, you know, a, a more ethnic enclave a minority community in the city, I think people largely should be able to build what they want to build with the property that they own, um, barring, you know, some obvious exceptions that that revolve around you know, like human health, like you don't want like somebody building like a, I don't know, like a waste management site in the middle of a neighborhood or something like that. But barring the kind of more obvious example, more obvious exceptions, I think in terms of just housing alone, um, that we should allow way more of it. And I think in doing so, it, it'll actually over time help slow a lot of the issues that you and I are both talking about. Um, the more we allow, we, the more we give people options to live where they would like to live rather than pushing everybody out where we're pushing, you know, wealthier whiter people out of suburbs and pushing them into the kind of like borders of low-income neighborhoods and then gentrifying inward that way and then in doing so displacing the low-income people in those neighborhoods to other low-income further away neighborhoods like that cycle of displacement um it, it's it it literally is a cycle and the only way to stop that cycle is to build enough housing to accommodate people uh, of all walks of life across racial and, and class lines yeah, what you're saying, it just shows us how trying to moralize all these issues does kind of, uh, I don't know, it makes it harder to actually get anything done, you know, like we end up talking past each other. But um, I do have have a very important question. Um, do you actually like going to the hipster coffee shops? <laughs> no, I, I generally hate them. Um, 
Do but, you really though? Like, do you hate them in principle, or you actually? No, no, not no, not in principle. I just t- tend to not like you know the environment or the coffee um, in general. But but it's but it's a weird thing to say, I guess, because talking about gentrification and development, oftentimes even the best like hole in the wall style coffee shops naturally quote unquote become gentrified the more popular they become. That's just kind of the nature of the beast. Like using the example of the coffee shop that I've been talking about throughout this is Steel City in Phoenixville. Mm-hmm. 20 years, like I said, the coffee shop's probably around 30 years old. 20 years ago, the town of Phoenixville was impoverished. I mean, the crime rates were way higher. There was literally, there was a, um, a, a mental institution downtown where they, they, they didn't have beds for a lot of the patients there. And these people would literally just like roam downtown at night. They had nowhere to go and just like, would cause ruckus and, it was it was a weird place to be like my parents and my friend's parents were really concerned when we started to go there as kids. And um, around that time, around like the early 2000s, there was this development pro- uh, proposal that was put forward that was like over the course of 15 years. Part of it was grants and part of it was just like the town investing in itself. But they um, spent hundreds of millions of dollars over the next decade or so just building out the downtown and adding new housing, cleaning up the streets. Um, creating more institutions for for the homeless population and so on. And um, and it worked. I mean, it, it worked to the extent that the town became a more desirable place to live, a more safe place to live, way more, ha- like there's way, way, way more housing units than there were um, at, the, at the time then. But if you look at this coffee shop from the early 2000s to now, it's unrecognizable. I mean, yeah. a coffee shop, you can see me, like if, uh, maybe if you Google some pictures, I don't, I don't know what's, what's all out there, but um, it used to be this really kind of dark, our artsy room full of just like local art that was hanging around, you know, stuff was broken. It, it just had like a kind of cool punk vibe. There was this mural. It was like a paper mache mural that was 3D that came out of the wall on the stage area. It was really just beautiful, cool, cool piece. Um, and now it's, it's switched ownership like three or four times since then. Now it's way more refined. It's all very bright colored, new lighting, um, like big, like paint, like exposed brick. Like it's just a way different uh, look. So I still love the people that I love the new owners. Like I, the coffee's good. Like they still do open mic nights. It's great. But the environment and the culture and the people it attracts are dramatically different than they were 20 years ago. And I think I, I can make a similar case for a lot of a uh, local and regional style third places over time as they, as they get more popular, it's, it's kind of hard to stop that um, from happening as the, as, as kind of yuppies discover, you know, hole in the wall places uh, as the demand changes and, Oftentimes that changes the the kind of culture of the place. Not every time, but oftentimes. Yeah, I mean, my my hang up is like I actually do enjoy hipster coffee because you know what I really like though? I like the pastries they have, especially if they have chocolate chip cookies. Like they're always extremely good, even though they're <laughs> extremely overpriced. Yeah, like, like, like coffee, six dollar cookies. <laughs> yeah, but like the six dollar cookie, like it's it's rare that it's going to be a bad cookie. And that's, that's yeah. my weakness. Because it's probably some local baker that is like an yeah. artist that, you know, like small business and they exclusively are a vendor to like that coffee shop and two other places. And yeah, it's probably, it's probably a great cookie. <laughs> yeah. And like the coffee's oftentimes pretty good, but I don't know. Like I feel like, okay, so obviously Starbucks is horrible. We all hate Starbucks, you know, big corporations, <laughs> but then we're between like, okay, the more, the down home options, the locally run options. Like you have this hipster one, which is overpriced and really pretentious. Like the sense of kind of um of like authenticity is really like performative. It's really false. Mm-hmm. Whereas like if you go to the more um again, like at least in my context, like being in Newark, being in Brooklyn, like like the real ethnic one, the one that's like somebody who's been in the neighborhood for years and it's probably much cheaper than the hipster one. Maybe the quality is not as good, but it's, you know, it's made with love. It's uh, like, you feel like you're connected to something. Um, the the sad thing, at least where I am now in Brooklyn, like th- those types are harder to find. The hipster ones are all over. Um, but anyway, that's that's my drama, trying to uh, avoid my temptation to eat the, the gourmet hipster cookie. I, I think the point of the cookies is that's actually a really great point because you're right. I mean, the prices are obviously obscene at most of these places, but it's they're often obscene because they do use like locally sourced artisan style ingredients and vendors and things that would, you know, make their place stand out from the other hipster coffee shops. Like they have to have the kind of their kind of unique selling points. Um, and, and I do think, you know, 
depending on who you are and like and, and your lifestyle and, and your background and all of that like you know there's, there's a place for you in any of these places depending on what your interests are like for me when i go into a lot of hipster coffee shops there's a sense like you said kind of it's a pseudo authenticity but it also just they rarely feel like third places like they often feel just kind of like a meeting place for the laptop class you yeah. know like for people to work on their laptops and not interact at all and people are just kind of coming in and no, out that's not it. And you, and you look at that versus like a more ethnic um ethnically uh, uh homogenous or homogenous ish place like i think about this this uh, barbershop it's literally right across the street from the steel city coffee shop i keep mentioning and it's been a black barbershop for as long as i can remember and it's right on the corner and they have this like really cool like just corner barbershop culture like they got a bench outside you always see black people out there conversing sitting on the bench talking like it's obviously like an important place you know for like that part of the community in town and i think there's absolutely something to that like across kind of third place categories where if you're like especially within a certain like racial or cultural minority or just class of people like say it's even religious like a church or whatever obviously like those places are important for the in group in, in order to kind of like maintain a kind of like a sense of identity and a sense of like social cohesion um but like you said i mean that that comes with its own sort of trade-offs and it's really it's it's a values based thing like it just kind of depends like do you value like are you looking for the, that kind of social cohesion within an identity group or are you looking for the really good cookie you know what i mean like and i, and I think that is there's just diff, people have different demand for when they go into a place like a coffee shop like what exactly are you looking for sometimes even just for me sometimes i am just looking for a window to sit on my laptop and do work in which case it works fine at the hipster hipster coffee shop works fine for that um but i think like in terms of the community building i think you do see a lot of those places struggle with that side of things in terms of like building a kind of authentic third place because there really is no cohesion within them it's really they're they're just kind of like a, a a optimized business model for yuppies to, to get good stuff like the quality of stuff is usually great um but the the um the environment is not conducive to just like let's meet other people and hang out here you know usually even though like within just like white communities in cities you often find more of that in things like the punk community you know and like more like the rundown like yeah. like uh like record shops and like co-ops like there's like i know there's like this one co-op uh record store it's like a, oh it's, sorry it's a bookstore in philly that's run by this kind of like anarchist community like that's the type of place where you know if you're a punk doesn't it doesn't really matter your skin color even though most punks are white um, at least in that area yeah, that's like you know a place where you can be, literally build community they got like flyers to local shows things like a political events that they're organizing or whatever. Um, and, and that's where you meet like your people. So if like, that's what you're looking for, you do have to kind of find some sense of cohesion. Whereas I think a lot of these more hipster oriented joints, they, I don't even know if like white is the works. A lot of them are multicultural, but like they really are just kind of oriented more around optim optimizing business. You know, like they're, they're more around just like, how do we make the best stuff to make the most money? You have like the best designed you know, decor in the place, you know, it's not really about trying to create that like homey hole in the wall sense of identity as much as it is about like, let's like move people in and out and, and get that bag, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, there are days where I just, I just want the really good cookie, but then the other thing, like you're saying, like if I go to one of those like old school coffee shops where it's again, like the sense of authenticity is like really organic and not like something performative or forced like if i take out my laptop and start doing work they're all gonna stare at me <laughs> exactly because sometimes it's you, need healthy, one it's, you know it's healthy because like you should be talking to people mm -hmm. be, but again i'm a suburban snowflake so i can't i can't do that <laughs> um, no but all right so i i do want to shift gears though real quick because a lot of your other content has to do with um Let's do with advertising, with marketing trends. And, you know, I, I mentioned that we met at this conference down in D.C. It was, um, so you were speaking with uh, Tara Zabella Burton, who's been on several times, Kat D as well, Jeff Schoenberger, who we're close to. Um, and you, you're mentioning, um, I think it was, there was like a Duolingo ad that, um, what was it? It was something like. Oh, the TikTok. Yeah, like the, yeah. the piss one, right? Yeah, what was the the Duolingo bird wanted to drink Duolipo's piss or something? What was yeah. that? Yeah, you mean know, you? Yeah, again, your audience. I don't know why they would want to, but they could. They could Google this, I suppose. I um, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, I mean, I I don't know how much of your audience 
you know, lives and breathes in this space. I mean, obviously I, I do this for work, so I end up kind of having to consume a lot of it, but yeah, the, the brand Duolingo, which I think most people have at least somewhat awareness of their presence on TikTok, um, which they've become in recent years, they've become essentially like the Wendy's of like what, what used to be like Wendy's Twitter, you know, now like Duolingo, Duolingo is to TikTok what Wendy's was to Twitter in terms of just their kind of ubiquitousness in the kind of weird brand personification uh, subculture there. And whereas like Wendy's, when they took to Twitter, their sort of marketing strategy largely was built around being sassy and like insulting people, like like roasting people, clapping back, that type of thing. Um, with Duolingo, their strategies, it's evolved over time, but I would say, especially in the early months and the early, like the first year, most of their big hits had to do around the brand acting horny. Um, there were like several, at least three, maybe five or maybe more uh, TikToks that I can recall where they were like thirsting, quote unquote, over the the singer Dua Lipa. Yeah. And um, the one, yeah, the one had like a a meme saying it was like it was like a video of like Dua Lipa and the text said something like, oh, no, like I just peed in the pool. And it was like Dua Lipa in the pool. And then like it just showed like the Duolingo owl like swim, like swimming in the pool. It was like me, you know, like I like I want to swim in the piss, basically. Um, so yeah, they're, they're, they've posted a lot of weird stuff like that. The, um, the, the head of social, I, I think she, like her title is global social media manager. Now I'm not sure. I, th I think she was just a social media manager at the time. Um, when like that was happening, her name's, uh, I think it's Zaria Parvez. I think it's how you pronounce it. Mm -hmm. She, um, she's been with the company for the past couple of years or few years. And she's been the one who's kind of spearheaded a lot of this, this strategy on TikTok. And she's super cool and she's super sweet and super savvy. Um, she knows what she's doing, how to get attention with these these kind of like absurd trends. The way they've positioned themselves, they they call it unhinged marketing, quote unquote, mm -hmm. which, you know, I guess is like a more sanitized way of saying horny. Like, I mean, they they do more stuff than just being horny, obviously, which is why they're trying to kind of say like, hey, it's not just about that. But I think a lot of that is what kind of initially got their big bumps in, in attention. Um, but yeah, I mean, they're just kind of, I, I wrote an article, this would have been, maybe 2021 it might have been 2022 i can't remember uh, i wrote it for vulture magazine and it's it's if you just google like brands acting horny it should be like the first or second <laughs> search result that comes up but i was fascinated by this trend because obviously somebody works in marketing and like having worked on an absurd brand account with stakeum i've kind of been really really close um to witnessing this trend of brand personification over the years on social media and it's interesting because like over that time, one of my biggest observations, which wasn't necessarily a novel observation, but it was one that like I, I wrestled with for a long time was the fact that like brands between the years like 2014 and 2019 had just exhausted like every possible way of positioning themselves online, you know, like through meme marketing, through calls marketing, where like they'd try to represent like a political cause or a social cause um through you know just trying to be funny and entertaining through sassy sassy attitudes through playing into things like depression like talking about how they're depressed or whatever you know they had really just touched on virtually every kind of avenue of a of, of human personification that, I, that that the big question was like well what are brands going to do next like there's only so many taboos to tap into at a certain point like i mean if you're trying to you know basically generate clickbait and, and, and outrage marketing for people to engage with your brand or your product once you've exhausted all of the most extreme sort of like emotional avenues uh to to, to grab people what's going to be left and at the time i remember i wrote an article about this initial trend in like 2019 and i concluded the article just by being like well who knows what's next i mean you know you got like religious taboos which i can't imagine any brand would want to touch because that's like more touchy than virtually any other taboo in the united states or really globally um, depending yeah. on the religion and um you got that and then you've got sex basically I mean, like brands at the time had already gotten into politics you already had things like the nike collaboration with colin kaepernick and and, and things like you know, like the pepsi kendall jenner ad with like the protests and all that like there was a bunch of stuff going on but then 2020 into the past few years it's really just been like a complete escalation of brands acting horny brands just acting completely unhinged uh, or as much as they can to to really just game the attention economy and I, it's it's one of those things where i think consumers at this point are completely burned out by it like there's a sort of um there's like a niche 
plateau that you can hit. Like if you're Duolingo, Duolingo is like the biggest in the world. So I don't think they're going to hit a plateau anytime soon just because they have like a um, such an accelerated growth that like I don't think they run into this issue. But for most brands that try, try this strategy, it's like you might tap into a certain community, like a, say like a stand community, you know, like say there's... um. I don't know, some celebrity, say say like Ariana Grande, right? And say you've got like a bunch of people who love Ariana Grande and say you're able to like tap into that audience. You can only tap into those niche communities so much before either they lose interest or they turn on you. And I think that's kind of the the thing that we're seeing, not just with brands, but I think just with people, like per personal brands, like people like you or I in general, with this kind of like new era of the internet where there's no longer a as much of a, a capacity for like reaching mass audiences like we really have to kind of carve out like a niche somewhere and that's i think what, what we're seeing brands slowly start to move into since the kind of like plateau of absurdity in in the past few years really since like 2020 onward maybe 2019 i guess is when it started to get pretty bad as well but um but yeah if, you, if, you're, if your listeners are interested like i wrote that piece for vulture it kind of it, it details a lot of the examples of various national and international brands playing into this trend and i yeah it's it's so ubiquitous at this point like i said i think it's lost a lot of its its steam because people just kind of see it now and they're like oh yeah we've seen this a thousand times like brands pretending to be horny or whatever um but it is a kind of disturbing and weird trend to witness because it just makes me think like for, even from my job's uh security standpoint like when i think about 10 years from now like what is any of this going to look like you know like so much of this has happened just in the past few years um and really makes you think like either there's got to be some kind of cultural shift like a revolt or like a complete you know mental like a kind of socio mental shift around like our expectations with how brands behave or it'll just kind of continue this race to the bottom of, of weird <laughs> weird content so like, i guess we'll see but yeah, that's when we were at the conference talking about the kind of like mimetic nature of how like brands interact online and, and internet culture at large. That's that's been a weird one to witness because it's it's very mimetic and it's very uh, bizarre for, to to see. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, what I'm observing more and more, um, and I mind you, I should mention this. I, I think it was it's almost yeah a year ago, so January 23. I decided to give up Spotify Premium because i don't know like i started listening to the radio more and i just felt it was more healthy but then just like listening to regular spotify the ads i don't know like having the ads makes me feel like more grounded in reality like i'm not in this eternal loop of like mm -hmm. picking one song after another and content, cool content, also, content. yeah but like it's cool getting to listen to the ads because it gives you a read on i don't know where we're at culturally and no but my general observation with ads is um it's no longer an ideal for brands to try to win the respect of, of viewers or listeners. Rather, like you want to really grab their attention. So if, you know, trying to make this brand seem like it's really reputable, like their product is really, you know, well-made or useful, um, then you're just going to do whatever it is that grabs their attention and makes them remember your brand and then eventually buy it. And I think like that's what you're saying with uh, the, the Duolingo stuff, that it's, you know, even if it's to the point of total absurdity, or amorality um that's what these brands will do to get our attention which is like kind of disturbing but the other thing that you said at uh novitate was um that you're you're seeing i mean kind of what you're saying now about the mimetic nature of these like absurdist ads but people like it used to be that brands were trying to emulate people but now people are kind of emulating brands mm -hmm. or people are trying to invent their own brands so like, could you say a little bit more about what you, that observation that you have yeah, well, and even just playing into what you just said with the Duolingo trend, I think you don't really, because of the mimetic nature of this stuff, you don't get like, like the trends within advertising or within just culture in general, they're never siloed. So like it's these trends only exist in, in a sort of um, ping pong back and forth between audiences and brands. And when I say brands, I mean, including people like me, like public figures, companies, YouTubers, et cetera, like people that are kind of creating a product whether that's literally for sale or just you know trying to capture your eyeballs for something and i think like with the duolingo thing it's not like it's not like them acting horny was like a random like oh we, we know this is going to get attention let's do it it's like they made calculated decisions based on like the the trends that their audience was ta were talking about um and they played into it you know so it's like their audience were already making like associations and kind of you know inappropriate jokes and 
and just and various weird remarks about the brand and they, they were following that and playing directly into it so i think similar to this whole you know people want to be brands and brands want to be people thing it's like we're we're, we're trapped in this feedback loop where i think about this all the time uh, it plagues me because over the years of my work you know i've, I've built up this uh somewhat decent sized niche personal brand where i have people who have followed me from like my work with Stakeum, people have followed me from the urbanism stuff and just various other topics that i've covered over the years and through that i'm constantly just thinking like you know as a person like as somebody who just exists in the world and wakes up in the morning and puts bird seed in my bird feeder and walks my dog and hangs out with my kids and watches tv or whatever like i i hate the constant sort of un, unsaid pressure of like whatever i post online has to be attached to this quote-unquote personal brand and yet because of how i've sort of built my career and the ways that i make money and and uh and get gigs doing even things like that conference you know like the opportunities to do things that is all exactly that it's all based on my online presence to a degree so it sucks because you know part of my work with stakeum when i was posting through that account what made it go so viral was how I constantly played into the fact that we were advertising. So like we were, we would talk about things like mental health, the mental health, mental health crisis among young adults or COVID misinformation and how to navigate that and so on. And the way in which I, I framed the language was always like, look, you know, we're not trying to tell you how to think. We're just telling you like, here's a descriptive observation about the world. And, you know, this is something we have to figure out together. And by the way, we're a brand. This is an ad, you know, like we're trying to sell you something, but we also think this is an important message. And that the absurdity of that that juxtaposition is what made it go super viral. But it's funny because that's how I personally feel about a lot of this stuff too. It's like I I I'm, prior to working in social media, I really hated social media. Like I was I the idea of like having to kind of post your every thought and all your work and gaming these platforms for attention. Like you I literally I, I often get these um these uh, Facebook memory posts from like 10, 15 years ago. And that's like what I'm talking about on Facebook. Just be yeah, like a teenager and like a young adult just being like, oh, I hate these platforms and like what they're doing to like my brain and our, our culture and whatever. Um, so part of my like processing of that has been to kind of like sell like, you know, in a meta way, kind of analyze it while I'm doing the thing that I'm talking about hating doing, you know, like while I'm kind of building this personal brand. And I think um, for me, at least, that's been like one of the only ways that's helped me stay kind of sane with it um just to kind of like keep me level keep me grounded while you know having to kind of shill out a part of my personality that you know I, I i don't necessarily want to be doing day in and day out like i mean there's i go weeks sometimes without posting anything on twitter because i'm just like i just don't have anything to say like i don't really want to feed into the discourse like i, I know exactly how to like i've made a, a bajillion you know viral posts over the years like i know how to craft a viral post i know how to use the language like I just don't want to like i don't want to add to the noise like i don't want to just be saying stuff to say it just to get into the discourse and yet in doing so that's how i stay relevant that's how i get future gigs so it's this really weird uh paradox that like i think myself and and, and other people who are trying to build uh either careers or even as hobbyist um careers like maybe maybe it's like a side thing for somebody i mean it mostly is i treat it's, it's both for me because i don't it's not like i make all my money from posting and I work in marketing, but I get leads from posting. So it's kind of like a, it helps me on both ends there because it's my passion um, projects that I write and I talk about, but um, those, those end up leading to actual monetary gains. So I think um, it's definitely, it's just people have to deal with it in their own terms. And I think it's really difficult because I think people, obviously people aren't brands, people are people. And um, I think the new world that we live in on social media and the incentive structures that exist on these platforms and in just media at large they're so intertwined with opportunity for career that it's really difficult to to separate them you know like i think i, I have a few friends of mine and, and colleagues that work in marketing or they're writers like i have this one writer friend named oliver bateman who um you might know i'm not sure if you know oliver yeah, I know him, yeah. okay yeah like he's oliver's a, like a fascinating guy because like he does have a quote-unquote personal brand but it's kind of like this sort of like he just constantly mocks it like it's a parody of itself in a way and he's never really trying to build it like he is his accounts like on private half the time like he's just kind of shooting shit into the wind like he's not interested in doing like viral zingers like that type of thing um and yet like through his career he's a he's a, he's a writer by career he does mostly ghostwriting and like these kind of obscure 
like small writing gigs that he gets within a community that are almost exclusively based on just who he knows and the work he's done. So like he does have to post a little bit to kind of maintain, you know, maintain like in his sense of like, Hey, I'm still around to certain editors and whatnot. But you know, largely speaking, I think if he, if he deleted his Twitter account tomorrow, I think he'd still be fine for most of his writing gigs over the next decade or so. He just has like, he has that many connections and he's that prolific of a writer. Um, and I have other friends like that work in marketing who are so good at what they do. Like they're such good copywriters or they're such good designers that they don't need social media at all because their work is that good that enough people in the industry know who they are. When, whenever they need a job, they just tell the right people. It gets spread around and they're fine. And if you're that good, that's awesome. Then you don't have to waste time kind of like, you know, parsing your soul with these platforms. But I think for most people, um, it's just the way. To, to stay relevant, to, to create a sense of, um, of purpose, even on top of the monetary gains. I think, you know, a lot of people, they just use the sort of, uh, the nature of, of personal brand building to, to feel like they're making a difference in the discourse and to feel like they have a community of people that care about them because they're liking their tweets or, or sending them DMs about how cool that video was that they made or whatever. Um, and I think that that's a really, you know, again, having had a lot of viral videos and, and posts over the years. And that's a very powerful thing. Like when you get people messaging you and emailing you and commenting, be like, this is amazing. Like I've never heard somebody put it this way. Like it obviously it hits certain receptors in your brain and, and it feels really good, but I'm always just kind of coming back down to the reality of like, you know, it's just, all it is is content. Like you said, with the Spotify thing with the ads, it's like, yeah. all my video is, it's, it's one more video that somebody saw before they went to the next video and the next video and the next video. And it's like, that's just kind of how we, we consume things now. So you know, we tell ourselves the story we want to tell ourselves in order to feel better about what we do. Um, we all do that, I, myself included. But, you know, I think that trend of kind of people wanting to be brands and brands wanting to be, be people is like, it's, it's, it's going to, to continue going on for as long as the incentive structures exist the way they do online. And it's something I really, really hope more people start to write about and grapple with because it's absolutely having just a mass impact on our social psychology you know yeah well so speaking of brands before we wrap up um do you want to plug any of your pages or any of your particular uh content that you think people would be, <laughs> should check out yes yeah, my time to plug the personal brand i mean no i mean I, I don't um i don't post a ton right now i mean i'm a i'm a dad now i've got I just had a our second kid um this past january so i've been doing a lot of dad stuff recently i haven't been posting too much content i tweet once in a while um usually not like i said not like very uh not like very witty viral style tweets they're usually just dumb things i think of random at random times of the day um and i do post to my instagram stories a lot i kind of that's more of a curation i don't necessarily post a ton of original stuff there but if you're you know interested in the stuff that we're talking about you'll probably like the things i post on my instagram story because i curate a lot of uh social political marketing style content there yeah. um but yeah i mean my 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 Pages are all just my name. So it's just Nathan Allabach, wherever you are. If you want, I, I don't post on TikTok anymore, but I have, you know, an archive of a lot of videos there. I'm on LinkedIn. If anyone's interested in, you know, in this, in the industry and they want to chat about any of this stuff. Um, but otherwise, yeah, just find me wherever if you want to chat. Um, and, and yeah, that, that's, that's all I got, man. Awesome. Well, Nathan, thank you so much for coming on. We covered a lot of ground, but uh, no, it was a, uh... Again, it's refreshing to find other people who have these kinds of these kinds of questions, you know. So I, I appreciate you taking the time. No, I appreciate you having me, Stephen. It was it was really great chatting with you at that that conference. I'm glad we got to do this follow up. I was telling you before we started recording that you've been staying on me the past couple of months while I've been That's just, what I do yeah. <laughs> neglectful <laughs> of email, and I'm I'm really glad that that we finally made this work. And I haven't done a podcast in a long time, so I feel like I'm very out of practice. But it was a fun 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 dialogue, and I appreciate your your perspective on things. So so stay in touch. Awesome.